Welcome everyone to Shaping Vaping, which is our weekly conversation into the latest in vaping policy. It is Monday, February 2nd, and I'm very excited to have two harm reduction experts from the R Street Institute join us today. Um, first of all, we've got Mazen Saleh, who's the policy director for the Integrated Harm Reduction Program at R Street. So welcome, Mazen, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Thank you for having me, Amanda. Uh, and it is Mazen. Uh, very close, though. Oh, thank you so much. Apologies for no that. No worries. And we've also got Chelsea on here. It looks like we're having a little trouble um, with her mic, so um, she, she'll be along shortly here. Um, so thank you both for joining us. And as a reminder to everyone listening, if you have questions along the way, raise your hand in the space and we'll do our best to give you a chance to speak and ask questions of our guest. Um, so first of all, today, I wanted to talk about how we can unite the political tribes under the harm reduction banner. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through how our street is using its research program on harm reduction um, to look at bipartisan support. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, so uh, for those uh, unfamiliar with R Street, uh, we are uh, R Street Institute. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, public policy research organization that is uh, based in Washington, D.C., but we actually also have offices in Georgia, Texas, Ohio, California, and Connecticut. Um, our specialty is really tackling issues that are complex but don't usually uh, grab major headlines. Uh, we think that uh, uh, we can uh, those are areas where we can have real impact kind of uh, victories at the margins. Um, we also believe that freer markets work better than the alternatives, but understand that sometimes the legislative process calls for practical responses to current problems. Uh, so you'll see a, a popular motto uh, with our organization and tagline, which is free markets, real solutions. Um, we differ from other groups uh, in our dedication to kind of building a, a very uh, very broad coalitions and working with really a wide array of groups who share specific policy goals. Uh, what we, uh, since conception in around 2008, I believe when the organization was started, we always had a harm reduction uh, department. Uh, and the harm reduction department was uh, typically uh, exclusively focused on tobacco and alcohol, uh, some opioid work and some work in sexual health. Um, uh, uh, about July of last year, we actually expanded that to integrated harm reduction. And uh, really that integration spans across both alcohol and tobacco, um, bringing in the fold cannabis, uh, psychedelics, uh, working, continuing to work in the opioid space and, and in comprehensive sexual health. So both in terms of uh, sexual education, uh, in addition to other things in terms of hormonal birth control and pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV populations and things of that nature. Um, and so uh, really our goal is to kind of apply the best public policy research and science to solve a wide variety of problems, um, which oftentimes intersect. Uh, so we envision really a world where clinics for people who suffer from opioid use disorder could also um, help those who uh, smoke cigarettes switch to something uh, safer, like vaping products, uh, if they if they cannot or will not abstain from uh, smoking combustibles, or where uh, high school high school health classes include not only more comprehensive sex education but provide accurate information about the relative risks of all sorts of behaviors that are dem uh, that are demonstrated to affect uh, health and well being. 
Um, and so we think that we can make the fastest change by taking a more holistic, comprehensive approach. Oftentimes, these things on the public policy level are advocated for in silo. And so our aim is to bring all of these really under one tent um, and to have groups kind of advocating for one another's harm reduction. We believe if you support one form of harm reduction, you should be supportive of the others as well. Yeah, thank you for that excellent overview of the work you all have been doing. You know, in the course of, of hosting our Twitter spaces every week, we've had the opportunity to talk to several individuals who are at the forefront of um, these various harm reduction topics. And it's been so fascinating to learn about this broader area of harm reduction and to hear about how researchers are now applying that to tobacco harm reduction. So thank you all very much for the work that you do in that area. And very happy to say we've got Chelsea added now. Thank you, Chelsea, for joining. Sorry about those technical difficulties. Um, but I wonder if you'd just like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work that you do at R Street. Sure, and I'm glad everything worked out. Um, so my background is in epidemiology and I'm a fellow at R Street. Uh, I work on all facets of the harm reduction pro portfolio, um, but tobacco has kind of been my bread and butter for most of the time that I've been here. Um, my thesis in grad school focused on um, the intersection of um, chronic pain, mental health, and um, opioid use. So I've worked a little bit in the illicit, or well, in the chronic pain and other drug use space as well. Great. Well, I'm very happy to have you both on today. Um, I was reading a piece on your website about the five myths of harm reduction, and I wonder if you could tell us about those myths and what most people um, you found don't understand about harm reduction or some misconceptions people have. Yeah, I can kick us off and hand it over to Chelsea as well. Um, I think first, uh, importantly, for folks who haven't heard of harm reduction, it's when we define harm reduction, what we're really talking about is a set of policies and programs uh, that allow individuals to mitigate the risks associated with particular behaviors, whether that's drugs or alcohol, tobacco, or even sex. Um, uh, at its very core, harm reduction kind of recognizes that those strategies that emphasize abstinence or behavior avoidance, while they might work for some individuals, they, are, they tend to be very ineffective at the population level. Um, and so alternatively, harm reduction respects both kind of human rights and personal autonomy, um, ensuring the provision of non-judgmental care and education alongside access to tools like condoms or alternative products that might help keep people um, safer. Uh, so the first harm reduction myth that we uh, tend to encounter is that it's, it's really only for people who use drugs. Um, and that is categorically false. <laughs> so harm reduction applies to many more behaviors than just drug use. I think if the COVID pandemic has taught us anything, it is that we all have a unique risk profile, right? There are things that we are willing to do um, for certain trade-offs. And so whether, you know, you put a, a helmet on when you take a bike ride or you call an Uber if you've had a couple drinks, uh, you know, out with family and friends, um, uh these are all kind of forms of harm reduction, and most people engage in harm reduction uh, on a daily basis, but might not very well be aware of it. I think the uh, second uh, myth that we encounter is really that it uh, harm reduction normalizes, encourages, or even enables risky behavior. Um, uh, 
Uh, and the fact really is, is that harm reduction just accepts that people are going to engage in risky behaviors. I think that's the core foundational component of harm reduction. So it's not that we're normalizing or encouraging or enabling it. We just are realists in knowing that it's going to happen um, and that there's no judgment for such behaviors. Um, but this doesn't necessarily mean that risky decisions are encouraged, right? And so I think the important thing to know about harm reduction is that it, it acknowledges that there are very real harms associated with a variety of behaviors, um, and it really doesn't uh, try to minimize the impact of them. Um, uh, what it aims to do is just to keep people safer, give them some safer alternatives uh, if they uh, cannot or will not abstain from, from those behaviors. I want to give Chelsea a chance to speak as well. I know we have a, a, a few more myths that we uh, tend to encounter. Yeah, I'll take the other three of our top five myths. So our third harm reduction myth is that harm reduction prevents or opposes re recovery or complete cessation. Um, and it simply replaces one addiction with another. And again, that's categorically false. Um, harm reduction doesn't doesn't oppose or prevent abstinence. Uh, if someone is seeking to completely abstain from whatever drug or substance they're using, harm reduction is there to help them along that pathway. So while there may be a substitution um, of a product or of a substance, there's still a pathway to recovery, cessation, or whatever word you want to use for abstinence. Um, but at the same time, it meets people where they're at. And if people who can't or won't quit a substance, using a substance or doing a risky behavior, um, harm reduction is there to make it safer for them. Um, and it's also oftentimes associated with entering long-term recovery. Uh, or, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, we could spend the whole hour talking about these five myths. I think you all are right over the target with these. Um, but, you know, that last one that you mentioned is so particularly fascinating to me because down in the in the vape shops, we're on the front lines of that. Right. You know, some people, their their quit smoking journey is very different from others. Some people are able to use vaping for a very short time and transition completely away from all nicotine use. You know, that's why we have so many different nicotine levels taking people all the way down to zero milligrams of nicotine, where at that point, they're just breaking a sort of behavioral habit at that point. Um, but then again, we have people that, you know, sometimes it might take them years of being, um, you know, on this harm reduction product of vaping before they're able to fully transition away. But it's so important what you guys are saying, because the journey is different for everyone. And, and rather than living in this ivory tower of how we think people should behave, it's about looking at what people are actually doing and what actually works for them and recognizing that that journey is different for everybody. So I think these are all incredible points. Thank you. Yeah. And that's one of the big things that you have to think about in tobacco harm reduction is having the availability of the various concentrations of nicotine, as well as different flavors available for people so that they can find their own pathway to what works for them for decreasing their smoking, um, they're decreasing their smoking and possibly one day abstaining from all nicotine use if that's what they choose to do. Um, our fourth myth is that harm reduction services make neighborhoods less safe. And I think that that one oftentimes gets played up with um, harm reduction 
services for opioid use. Um, but you can also think about it from a perspective of like, sometimes people talk about how, well, people talk about secondhand smoke and adding vapor products to smoke-free air laws, which is something that we haven't talked a lot about at our street. Um, but, you know, the research shows there too that secondhand vapor is less harmful than combustible cigarette smoke. Um, and when I was kind of taking a look at the research earlier today, you know, it was showing how even the exposure, there may be some exposure to nicotine in secondhand vapor. However, it's still lower than combustible cigarettes. And it's also, um, there are very few biomarkers that change in response to uh, secondhand vapor. So I think that that's one of those where you can say that like harm reduction is making, they could be making um, exposures for other people if they are normally exposed to secondhand smoke safer as well. Um, oh yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think a lot of times we just think about it from one side, but um, that was one of, I was trying to think of how to apply the myths to tobacco harm reduction a little bit more succinctly. And that was one of the ways that I came up with for myth four at least. Um, and then our last myth is that harm reduction is unnecessary if we remove drugs and dealers from the equation. Um, and I think that this one also, you can relate it to tobacco harm reduction in that we see kind of this, I guess, push from anti-harm um, reduction advocates to sort of regulate tobacco out of existence. And that is no different than the war on drugs. It's just that people are going to use any substance at some level, regardless. Um, it may be at a very low level in the population, but you can't regulate it out of existence. Um, and so removing tobacco just makes people or removing tobacco products just makes things more unsafe. And I think the Valley um, scare, which we know is not, um, was not caused by nicotine containing vape, vapor products, um, really showed that because it was illicit THC containing products that were the culprit in that outbreak. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. You know, we're always wary of, of media reports over here on shaping vaping. But, you know, to your point, I was reading an article over the weekend uh, pertaining to Australia and some of the prohibition they've enacted there. And what they're seeing spring up now is, you know, this problem of like Lyft and Uber drivers selling vapes out of the glove box of their cars now. Um, because the products are so difficult to legally obtain. So, you know, this myth that you'll get rid of, you know, illicit dealers and illicit providers of substances is, I think, you know, kind of ridiculous. Um, because, you know, certainly here, all of these misguided efforts that we've seen to, you know, regulate these products out of existence, they always come with unintended uh, black and gray market consequences. Absolutely. For sure. Um, yeah, so those are our five myths. Yeah, well, thank you for that overview. I think I think all of those are, are very on the nose of, you know, what we wish policymakers would look at when they were looking at this topic. Um, you know, so we've seen, obviously, and, and you both are familiar with this, but we've seen study after study 
showing how beneficial vaping is to help people quit smoking, um, how much of a reduced risk vaping products carry compared to combustibles. And, and yet none of that seems to make a dent in the general public opinion of these products. And I wonder what our street is doing to translate some of this academic research into real world impact. Yeah, I can uh, pop in on here. Uh, so um, essentially the way that uh, our street engages uh, on these issues uh, really to influence policy in the US and, and even globally, um, is that we use two specific approaches, uh, both research and advocacy uh, simultaneously sometimes. Um, so in terms of research, uh, we develop in-house public policy research on a wide variety of topics. Um, uh, these uh, include both long form and short form kind of analyses. Um, so to give you a, an, a flavoring of some of the active research projects we have uh, this year, um, one, we're looking at um, a long-form policy on accelerating harm reduction from combust combustible tobacco use. So really doing an assessment on some of the barriers and facilitators for um, existing harm reduction providers to then roll out uh, tobacco harm reduction uh, services. Um, we're also looking at uh, the fight to increase life expectancy for HIV-positive smokers. Uh, the data... Uh, that we have seen um, recently. So with the introduction of antiretroviral therapy, uh, which uh, helps to treat or, or prevent uh, HIV, um, what we're now seeing is that individuals lose more life years from uh, smoking than they do from their HIV diagnosis. And so uh, looking at ways in which uh, those population, we can accelerate kind of tobacco harm reduction in those populations in order to get those life years back. Um, so we, we don't only look at both the, uh, the, the harm reduction frameworks and the individual, but we're also looking at providers as well. And so um, looking at healthcare providers as harm reduction advocates, uh, uh, what they feel their role is and their scope of practices and what are some, uh, you know, barriers into them being able to expand that scope uh, and including some of these topics like tobacco harm reduction or dispensing Narcan or whatever that harm reduction intervention might be. Um, and so those are kind of the research components. Um, I don't know, Amanda, do you want me to talk on the advocacy pieces as well? Yeah, sure. We would love to hear more about your advocacy work. Sure. Uh, so we uh, tend to conduct educational, excuse me, outreach to lawmakers. Excuse me. Sorry, a frog in my throat this afternoon. Uh, so we meet with legislators and their staff on both the federal and state level. Uh, usually the format of this type of outreach tends to include one-pagers. Uh, we conduct virtual and in-person events, uh, sit on expert panels, and provide research highlights. Well, that's excellent. Uh, it sounds like you might be having a little difficulty there. Um, but it's, it's so great to hear about all of the things that you guys are doing in various aspects of harm reduction. And I wonder um, if you could share your thoughts on how the state of tobacco harm reduction and policymakers' understanding of that relates in comparison to the larger harm reduction efforts on some of these other areas you all are focused on. I can take that one. Um, so I think it's really interesting how we see some areas of harm reduction are really neglected, like tobacco harm reduction, um, well, neglected in 
public opinion, I suppose, but, um, or positive public opinion. But then there's a lot of support for um, opioid harm reduction or sexual health harm reduction moves. And obviously we want to see all of the harm reduction um, policies adopted. We wanna see every form of harm reduction taken at the same level of acceptance and um, I guess met with the same fervor as the others. Um, but it's just very interesting to see too how generally speaking from a political spectrum standpoint, you tend to see the right is a little bit more supportive of tobacco harm reduction, while the left is much more supportive of opioid harm reduction and sexual health harm reduction. So it's this interesting chasm where um, people on both sides are buying into the harm reduction argument. They just aren't buying into it wholeheartedly. They're picking and choosing which subjects they want to apply harm reduction to. And we are really working on integrating harm reduction um, areas at R Street and making it so that people are more, well, and trying to make it so that policymakers can accept harm reduction across the spectrum. Thank you, Chelsea. I'll also add to that as well. Um, so in terms of influencing public opinion, which again, you know, goes to the state and the local levels as well as um, we uh, write a large degree of kind of uh, opinion op-eds in a variety of local and national outlets, um, everything from the American Spectator to the National Review, and that we do advocacy work on a global level too. So uh, whether that's submitting testimony and other countries uh, around vaping legislation that's that's emerging that is misguided. Um, we submit state testimony often, uh, swatting down again misinformed legislation, issuing voto voting alerts to on federal pieces, and uh, trying to engage with multi-disciplinary um, kind of organizations uh, that are uh, that have entrenched stances. Um, so the, the WHO is probably the the primary multilateral organization that comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, you know, harm reduction fights happen at every level of government. And so it's great to hear about your activities, you know, globally, locally, and federally as well. One thing that we've been focused on a lot is state legislative policy. Obviously, it's that time of the year um, where many of the state legislators have, you know, various types of prohibition-oriented bills introduced and being pushed uh, various tax proposals, things of that nature. Um, we've got several states actively re reviewing flavor bans at the moment. The state of Maine is taking up the issue of flavors this week in committee. Um, we've discussed a lot of legislation that's also been introduced in Colorado, Ca California, other places. Um, what is the message that our street really delivers to state lawmakers on these topics? That's a very good question. <laughs> and I think that the messaging is, uh, you know, really specific to um, to the type of uh, legislation that is proposed. Right. So as you had uh, so cogently said, uh, we see policy arguments that cover everything from nicotine caps to flavor bans and taxation to T21 and uh, what's now emerging as single use plastics. Right. So there's this new environmental angle. Um, so uh, really, I mean, what we're seeing are kind of anti-tobacco advocates really throwing the kitchen sink at the issue uh, and leveraging kind of youth use as the vehicle that drives it all forward. Um, there is very little effort, though, around um, 
or, or conversation around enforcement of uh, Tobacco 21. Uh, so everything seems to be focused on supply rather than the actual demand. Um, we know that uh, around $250 billion has already been paid uh, out by tobacco companies to states, but nearly all of it falls into their general funds, right? So if you just look at 2021, less than 3% of the $27 billion allocated uh, went directly to smoking cessation and, and prevention. And so collectively, I think we should be asking why. Um, you know, when it comes to things around taxation, uh uh, we really kind of push back on on items like tax parity um, or, or, or reducing the taxation of e-cigarettes and other reduced risk products in line with combustible cigarettes. Um, we, uh, you know, we recommend risk proportionate taxation that takes into account um, both a lower risk profile of e-cigarettes and taxes them at levels lower than combustible cigarettes because the idea is really to incentivize people to switch to switch to less harmful alternatives. Uh, so we're seeing legislation and effort uh, there in states like Washington and New Mexico and New York, Mississippi and Minnesota. Um, uh, there are, you know, you had mentioned the flavor ban issue. We had actually we've already submitted uh, testimony to Maine on the flavor ban piece. Uh, we we are one of our major messaging points is that the availability of flavored e-cigarettes is really important for helping adult smokers uh, switch to e-cigarettes. And so. Uh, Maine isn't the only state that's kind of tackling this as well. We're seeing Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Vermont, Rhode Island, Hawaii. So it's really kind of widespread, um, uh, widespread issue. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I it's so interesting. I'm, I'm really glad that you hit on this taxation piece because, you know, obviously there are these issues like nicotine caps and the single use plastics issue that we're seeing come up. Um, but, you know, more commonly, the last couple of years, we've been, you know, really stuck in this pattern that is very much focused on 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 flavor bans and this unicorn myth of tax parity. And you did such a great job summarizing why that parity isn't actually parity, right? We, we don't want to disincentivize smokers from being priced out of a safer product. Um, and to me, looking back on, on this, I, I know Lindsay Stroud's in the audience. It sounds like she does some similar work to you all. Um, where she is intensely focused on um, tobacco tax money and and how that money is is not spent on tobacco control. Usually, in her research that she shares with me, it's it's usually a very very low percentage of that total money that actually goes to tobacco control. Uh, you know, and and my question is, you know, given that that all of this money is is collected under the guise of reducing smoking. Should the taxpayers be offended that that so little of it is being used for those efforts? And is there a better way that states should be spending this money? You know, I think that um, I think that they should be offended. Whether or not they are is a different question. Um, and I think that there's a little bit of struggle in that a lot of times there's so much stigma around smoking. And so, and I think that there's a lot of people out there, who, especially non-smokers and especially people who aren't in communities where there's a lot of smoking going on, that there's a perception much like there are with people who use drugs that like, that they're harming themselves and they know better and they should just stop. And so I think that oftentimes it's a really easy target for policymakers is to say, oh, well, we'll raise taxes, we'll syntax something. And 
um, then we'll use it to pay for other things. And most people are like, and a lot of people I think are, are just happy that it's going to schools or it's going to something that they see as more um, virtuistic, if that's a word. Um, and <laughs> they uh, might, so I think that some of this is smoking stigma. And so like there's, and Mazin might have a different take on it too. Um, so I'd like to give him a second to ring in on this one. Thank you, Chelsea. I would I would definitely agree that it, a lot of it is smoking sigma. I also know that, you know, uh, with, you know, a little bit of the economic downturn over the last number of years, and we're seeing rising inflation and costs and supply side issues, I think states are really struggling to balance budgets, right? And so this is looked at as easy money. Um, but I think that, um, I think that the, the goals of taxation really are to generate large amounts of revenue and reduce nicotine consumption. But I, I think what, what um, you know, uh, policymakers don't realize is that when you, when you pursue those two objectives simultaneously, they're inherently at odds with one another. Um, consumers have to purchase nicotine products to generate a desired tax revenue. And if you make it more expensive, then the taxes increase uh, the taxes increase the likelihood that the consumption will decrease. So you're neither neither the public health nor the state's coffers actually benefit from these. And so I think it's a it's a misguided kind of approach to uh, long term uh, budget balancing. Absolutely. You know, um, one last thing that I, I think we're seeing pop up in the states this year is, you know, a, a bit of what I would consider a positive policy. Um, this idea of, of statewide uniform standards um, when people are approaching regulation of, of nicotine vapor products, um, where the local municipalities would have to adhere to this statewide uniform code of laws instead of dictating to local vape shops what they can and can't sell. Um, I wonder, Mazin, if you could tell us if this is a sound policy in your view. Yeah, um, so that is something that we are seeing emerge in terms of kind of a mu municipality strategy. The, the problem is that's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Uh, so what we've seen is we've seen um, the passing of restrictive e-cigarette legislation actually at the municipal level, um, particularly in population centers of a state um then expanding that legislation into an argument at the state level. So after you get a couple population centers to pass legislation, you then move to the state level and argue that a large proportion of the state's population is already covered by that legislation. So you might as well finish the job. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think we're seeing that, you know, play out in Colorado currently. And so I think, I think that there's uh, I, why I call that a double-edged sword is because it's, you're having this opposing kind of approach from the from the municipal level that you are having from the state level. I think it makes sense from the state level, but um, you know, I think that's really going to depend who the loudest voices in the state are, right. And to, in, in terms of which direction that might flow in. Gotcha. Yeah. It was interesting. You bring up Colorado. So in 20, so prior to 2019, um, all nicotine products were regulated at the state level. And then in 2019, a bill was passed there to give um, local control over nicotine regulations. And, you know, we've lived out this process that you've described ever since where a lot of the anti-tobacco and tobacco control groups have gone from city to city in, you know, over 40 different municipalities there. And the local businesses that sell these products have had a very hard time keeping up with fighting, you know, these well-funded prohibitionist interests from city to city. 
And, you know, now we're seeing that they've failed in most of those flavor ban and tax fights in Colorado. And so they're kicking it back up to the state level this year to propose that state level flavor ban. So it's it's been a, a bit of a mixed bag in Colorado where, you know, the, the prohibition and tax attempts have been unsuccessful in a lot of places. But they have created major damage in, in some very serious areas like Boulder and Glenwood Springs. Um, but ultimately, we didn't see them prevail in major population centers like Denver or, you know, they haven't been able to get any traction in places like Colorado Springs or any other major areas. And so now, you know, we have this very large state fight this year. And so it's almost like whack-a-mole. They just try to do these things wherever they can, you know, and if they fail at one level of government, they just seem to try to kick it to another level of government. Um, you know, any, any, any means to that end, it seems like, is their strategy. It is absolutely the whack-a-mole game, uh, the, the carnival game that none of us really want to play anymore. Um, and so w- we're also starting to see that some states are trying to empower state health departments to regulate e-cigarettes, right, as opposed to uh, other committees that usually might be tasked with that. And so, um, you know, we think what might make good sense is a database of reduced risk products that have received PMTAs or pending decisions so that states and retailers can easily identify authorized products to, to you know, to help disambiguate some of the information around kind of uh, uh, what folks are, you know, have been billing the wild west of kind of e-cigarette products. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wish that FDA were in a more functional state to, to make a list like that uh, useful. But with this dysfunction we've seen out of FDA and now, you know, these dozens of, of court cases and pieces of litigation that are going on with all of these different uh, pre-market authorizations, it seems like that's a long way off from from being an actually useful piece of information. But yeah, I definitely see the intent there. Um, so it'll be interesting. We're going to continue watching these state uh, sessions this year and see how this goes. But, you know, really appreciate having advocates like our street that are such a strong voice for harm reduction speaking up in these different types of fights. Um, I wanted to move now to talking about um, the American Lung Association's 2021 State of Tobacco Control Report and, you know, how they're sort of sacrificing public health on this altar of, of fundraising, right? Um, and in reading the report, so many things jumped out to me as just being completely backward, which is not a total surprise. Um, the one that alarmed me most um, was ALA's call to raise taxes on vaping to the same level as taxes on cigarettes, which, as we've already discussed, um, will result in more smoking, obviously. Um, I wanted to ask why, in, in the view of you two particularly, why do you think ALA takes these types of positions that research clearly shows will harm public health? Do you think that this is a, just a cynical fundraising ploy, or do you actually see them as these sort of true believing crusaders that they purport to be? So I try to assume the best of intentions um, in people and organizations, although it's very difficult to do that sometimes. Um, I think that what is going on is that there's this conflation between nicotine and smoking. And I think that the ALA really understands that and is capitalizing on it in um the public's view um, because we know that nicotine, yes, is the addictive um, component to cigarettes, combustible cigarettes, um, but it's not what causes most of the harm from combustible products. So 
I think that what has happened is that before vaping products came on the scene, it was very easy to just say, well, because nicotine is addictive and because it's what makes gets people hooked to combustible cigarettes, um, we envision a world without smoking, which kind of transitioned into a world without nicotine once we started seeing vaping products emerge. And I think that this like crusade against nicotine is sort of what's being pushed and it's very easy for them to then start throwing in the gateway argument, which is of course that um, if people start using vaping products, they're going to move on to combustible products because of the nicotine addiction. Um, It's very easy to say that kids are going to start using um, combustible products because of the gateway hypothesis. It's just wrapping up nicotine and versus combustible cigarettes. And so I think breaking, we've, we've talked a lot about how do you break up that argument and kind of disengage um, nicotine from smoking in the public view. And I think that the ALA just really takes and uses that, um, I guess, view to push a world without nicotine. Yeah, I think I think that's a very worthy point. And it's so backwards, because the research is now there to to show that when you do these types of, of bans and taxes, that that's when that push to, to send youth back to smoking happens. And and so it you know, it's in my view, if the ALA was was on a sincere mission to to really decrease cigarette smoking, they would embrace these types of harm reduction products because the research has shown over and over again that these products work far better than traditional NRTs, um, far better than cold turkey. Um, and, you know, we've got entire countries like the United Kingdom where, you know, we can clearly see what's happened when these products are embraced and the net positive to public health that, that ensues as a result. Um, and so, you know, while I also try not to be cynical it does seem like a lot of these organizations that purport to be about reducing the number of smokers are really just about, you know, a crusade against nicotine entirely. Absolutely. I think that's um, kind of how I've been seeing it play out as well. Um, And I think that coming from a public health angle, there's a lot of um, bad blood and history between tobacco and public health practitioners. And I think that it's really hard for people to say that like, there may be for people who were around for the tobacco wars to come around to the idea that there may be a tobacco product that's not, uh, or that there is a tobacco product that isn't nearly as harmful as a combustible cigarette. And so um, I think some of it's about changing hearts and minds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Mazen, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, if I could just add to that as well, and I I think it's this, it just kind of promotes this um, misinformation, right, that tobacco companies develop the e-cigarette. So they actually weren't the ones who created and patented the e-cigarette at all. I actually believe it was a pharmacist in China. And so um, when you look at other countries and and speaking to some of our counterparts in the UK, you know, I, I was really asking them kind of about this youth use and angle and and why the UK isn't really suffering from that issue. 
Um, and, and they really build it out as, you know, when e-cigarettes hit the market, they were primarily smoking cessation tools, right? And so kids didn't really have um, a need or a desire to want to try something new. And so I think this uh, urge to have this knee-jerk reaction into kind of this nanny state, right, into, into saying what people can or can't do on kind of moralistic or punitive or judgmental things ends up kind of backfiring in a really spectacular way. I, that's such a good point. When you make something seem forbidden, right, to a population of people that's already a little risk inclined, right, which a lot of the research shows that the youth that, that smoke cigarettes or use vape, that they tend to be, um, you know, youth that are inclined to take risk. And when you put that that message out there that these products are so forbidden and, you know, all the this sort of covert message, all the other kids are doing it, like, don't do this. Um, it, it has the complete opposite effect. And I don't think it takes that much common sense to be able to see the unintended consequences of that kind of messaging. You know, I think it's pretty easy to see how that could readily backfire. Absolutely. And I think this really kind of relates to some of the earlier points we were when we were discussing kind of um, state budgets and, and kind of the funding for tobacco cessation and prevention should really be kind of you know, campaigns for parents on how to speak to their kids about vape use and things of that nature. And so we're just not seeing that level of investment there, even though the money's earmarked for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this this is best served, you know, as parents, you know, really keeping an eye on what their kids are doing, being able to have that open communication with their with their kids and, and giving tools to the parents so that they're able to do that in an informed way and in an effective way, I think would be far more helpful than, you know, death metal ads about vaping or, you know, Muppet type ads about vaping that we've seen groups like Truth Initiative put out. Um, so, yeah, I'm absolutely in agreement with you both on that. Um, I wanted to turn now to the media lapdog segment of our space. Um, let's look at how the media is sort of misrepresenting vaping and, and carrying water for all of these Bloomberg special interest groups this week. Um, we've got a story from Reuters that was completely slanted covering the lawsuits against the FDA over their blanket PMTA um, denials. They framed the case as a classic white hat versus black hats tale of this noble FDA fighting against greedy vaping companies that just want to hook kids on nicotine. Um, but of course, that is not the issue at all that's at stake in these pieces of litigation. Um, the Triton case covered in this article was about a flawed regulatory review process that the FDA used to sort of blanket cookie cutter deny vaping products. The reporter tries to discredit um, one judge on the Fifth Circuit panel who found Titan's case compelling as a conservative and used a quote to make her look like she was skeptical of COVID vaccines when she was referring to FDA's mismanagement and poor communication of this process. And so the question that I have about this is that why do reporters default to this framing for their arguments they don't like? Um, is this their bias slipping through or something else, this sort of black versus white, good versus bad dichotomy that they tend to report on? So I think that's a very good question. And I, I, can't, I, I, I can't really speak into kind of what's driving routers is kind of reporting pieces, but I, I can speak on some of the uh, challenges of that, of that article, right? And, and really the tone kind of as you eloquently stated is, um, and and that I will kind of try and oversimplify a bit is that FDA put out guidelines and everyone procrastinated to meet them. Um, but that's categorically false. We know that 
uh, they put out guidelines and then shifted the goalposts in terms of the inclusion of a requirement of a longitudinal research after applications were submitted. Um, so it's not necess- it's not like manufacturers were being lazy about the process. And I think it's um, I think you know more responsible reporting would have included the fact that. Um, the PMTA process is substantial, and we know some companies submitted applications with tens of thousands of documents um, prior to that decision being made. And so really the question should be, um, uh, you know, why were the goalposts moved um, at the 11th hour? And then why did the FDA delay decisions on companies with the most market share? I mean, if if some of the aims are really to kind of reduce or curb youth, youping, uh, youth vaping, uh, like the article states, you'd you'd probably want to cl- you'd probably want clarity on the most products used first, um, and so it's it's really interesting there. And I think that um, you know ultimately, I think clickbait is popular. Um, the way a lot, at least from my opinion, the way a lot of media operates these days is akin to social media consumption. Uh, so emotionally charged rather than logical arguments tend to get more clicks, which results in more ad dollars and appear more frequently. Right. So regardless of whether that uh, messages is, is accurate or inaccurate. So the other, the next piece that we have for our media lapdog segment this week comes from, um, Tony Dokupil. I probably butchered that terribly. The host of CBS this morning. Um, he promised viewers that he would follow up with more balanced coverage after his last segment on vaping drew a flood of sharp criticism from the viewers. But when he finally did, the new segment was just more anti-vaping propaganda, as we see again and again. Um, I wanted to ask, and this question is for either of you, in our street's engagement with the press, do you see this kind of willful slanting that we do, whether that be in the nicotine harm reduction space and other harm reduction um, spaces? Has that been your experience with the media? Um, I think that it's been... It's definitely challenging for us to um, promote a a pro harm tobacco harm reduction stance. Um, some outlets are more accepting of it than others, um, and I think you know we all have our have we all know the outlets that are generally more um, accepting than others. But I think like at the same time, I've had a few media outlets that surprised me and, um, you know, invited me on to talk about um, tobacco harm reduction and like kind of and their story was but they their story may have been slanted, but they gave me the opportunity to correct some of their misconceptions, which I think is rare but happens um do you have anything to add to that mazen no i just want to echo those comments as well where um you know if we have kind of noticed the slant um we've tend to push back on that and we we tend to find uh, quite receptive outlets at least in the media outlets that we uh, typically engage of course that's saying that we're not going to go and submit a tobacco harm reduction op-ed to, you know, to Bloomberg News or anything like that. We already know that's dead on arrival. Um, but um, yeah, for for many of the of the outlets that we engage in, we we tend to find um, a, a nice level of neutrality. Yeah, you know, um, thinking back to to your comments about you know what the Reuters piece should have actually covered the truth of the matter. I, I suppose it's it's much harder to write an appealing piece to readers that gets into, 
you know, regulatory requirements of, of longitudinal studies when the general public isn't so much familiar with that topic. It's probably much easier to, to create this sort of heroes versus villains uh, story that, that completely simplifies the matter. Uh, but I'm glad that you all have been able to find some outlets that, that want to accurately cover harm reduction. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was a Politico piece that came out over the weekend um, that gave every vaping opponent you can think of a chance to tee off on synthetic nicotine and flavored vaping. Um, the reporter literally didn't quote a single expert on tobacco harm reduction other than uh, Matt Myers, who was, of course, given the last word. Um, the only pro-vaping sources that were cited was the CEO of Puff Bar and then a spokesperson for the Vapor Technology Association, which then again sets up this dichotomy of industry versus NGO framing that suggests the only people who want flavored or synthetic products to be legal are those who have a financial stake in it. There couldn't possibly be anybody that wanted to weigh in on this, um, you know, for the good of smokers who want to quit, right? Um, so there are dozens of experts who will attest to the benefits of vaping and of flavored products, many of whom who work at our street and other, um, you know, worthy organizations. Um, why is it that you all never seem to be the ones called to be quoted in these kinds of stories, but every two-bit anti-vaping NGO gets a quote in Politico? I don't have the answer for that. Um, what I will say is that, um, you know, I think that there is, at least in my personal life, when I talk about what I do to people, um, they are kind of surprised that tobacco harm reduction is a thing. Um, and I think that it's becoming less of an argument that a reporter particularly could lean on to say that, oh, well, you know, I just didn't know, or there's not a whole lot of people that I could reach out to. Um, because as you mentioned, like there are more and more academics coming out in um, support of using electronic cigarettes as a harm reduction tool. Um, and it doesn't take nearly as much digging as it used to, to find someone who is supportive of tobacco harm reduction. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I can't answer the question fully because I am not a reporter, um, but I think that whatever it is, is that they should definitely start looking a little bit harder. Yeah, I wanna definitely echo what Chelsea said about uh, start looking a little bit harder. I think one of the pieces is um, we haven't done a, a ton of uh, writing on uh, synthetic versus lab-derived nicotine, and that might be the reason why this particular reporter did not reach out to us. But I, you know, I would hope that given a lot of our tobacco harm reduction work out there in the public that, um, uh, that there would have been a linkage. And so I think that sometimes it just speaks to, um, you know, the education of the person doing the reporting, right, about understanding the linkages between tobacco harm reduction and different types of nicotine versus tobacco and, and really uh, that kind of more nuanced and um, understanding of uh, a lot of these issues as opposed to some of the just major headlines that, that one might see. So in the, in the last few minutes we have left, you know, that's been enough uh, bad news on the media lapdogs. I wanted to ask you both, um, you know, what is the good news for tobacco harm reduction that you're looking out for in 2022? What are the good things on the horizon, horizon that, that you guys see as potential um, wins for this tobacco harm reduction cause to advance? 
Yeah, I can speak a little bit about kind of some of the activities that we are going to be undertaking is uh, one of them is really developing a broad coalition of um, everything from social workers and harm reduction providers to criminal justice professionals, things of that nature. So really a, a very large tent um, so that organizations can start learning from one another, can start advocating for other forms of harm reduction in their traditional settings, things of that nature. And so um, ideally, we will start really spurring the conversation about, um, you know, different uh organizations kind of utility of tobacco harm reduction and bringing that into the fold of uh, what's been known as traditionally substance abuse harm reduction frameworks. Um, and so we definitely think we can make headway there and have actually already started with a number of organizations signing on. Um, Chelsea, did you uh, want to add anything as well? Um, I think that <laughs> excited might not be the right word, but I'm certainly awaiting, like most of us are, the final PMTA decisions um, and hoping for positive outcomes for tobacco harm reduction. Um, and in the event that the FDA does in fact grant marketing orders, I think that we could, I think that will add a lot of momentum to what we're saying. Um, so that's more of a hopeful uh, and excited than anything else. And I'll just add to that to round it out is it also in the maybe cautiously optimistic uh, camp um, is that we'll, uh, we hopefully won't see the reintroduction of, you know, federal level tax equity acts. Um, so I know we saw it in 2021 um, from, from Durban and, and Wyden. I know it was included in the better, uh, the build back better plan. And I think um, both times it was um, defeated just kind of on it, on the merits that it's um, that it's inaccurate, right. And that it's misinformed legislation. And so, uh, cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to maintain that ground. Yeah, that's definitely a good thing to be optimistic about. I think I, I share your cautious optimism on that one. Um, well, that's all the time that we have today. Thank you both so much for joining us. And um, how can how can people follow your work and keep up with all the good things that our street is doing? Absolutely. Uh, so please follow our Twitter handle if you don't already at, at RSI. I'm actually co-opting it today. Um, and Chelsea's as well. I know she's on this call. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the harm reduction portion of our website uh, tends to have uh, all of our kind of um, everything from our op-eds and testimonies and things like that. And so if you ever need, you know, reference materials, uh, you know, more than happy to have you all use that kind of content. Yeah, thank you for, for making those resources available for people. We, we need all of the resources that we can get in this fight. So um, thank you both for joining today. Thank you for the wonderful work that our street is doing in this space. Um, we really appreciate you all coming on for the discussion today. And we hope everyone will join us back again next Monday at our usual time of 3 p.m. Eastern.